All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, and I am Doug Minton. That means we are standing in the confessional corner. This week, continuing our trek through Article 24 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on the Mass. Today, looking at paragraph 66 to 88 on the sacrifice and the sacrament. What is it for the sacrifice, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, in regards to what we think of as the sacrament of the altar? In the first couple of paragraphs this week, Melanchthon just talks about what the fathers thought about sacrifice and what they actually said about sacrifice in the context of what they were writing. So paragraph 66 and 67. Since we have explained the scripture passages that are quoted against us, we must also reply about the fathers. We know well that the fathers call the Mass a sacrifice, yet they do not mean that the Mass gives grace by the outward act, and that when applied to others it merits the forgiveness of sins, guilt, and punishment for them. Where can such freakish stories be found in the fathers? The adversaries openly declare that they speak about Thanksgiving, so they call it a Eucharist. However, we have said before that a Eucharistic sacrifice does not merit reconciliation, but is made by those who have been reconciled, just as troubles do not merit reconciliation, but our Eucharistic sacrifice is when those who have been reconciled tolerate them. In general, this reply to the sayings of the fathers defends us well enough against the adversaries. Certainly, these daydreams about the merit of the outward act cannot be found in the fathers. But so that the whole matter may be better understood, we will also state those things that actually agree with the fathers in Scripture about the use of the sacrament. So what do the church fathers say about the sacrifice? Well, they do call Mass a sacrifice, but they call it a Eucharistic sacrifice which we talked about last week, is an offering of thanksgiving given by those who have been reconciled already. It does not give reconciliation. It does not justify by simply doing it. It gives the forgiveness of sins, but it does not cause the forgiveness of sins. It is not that thing that justifies us because we've done it. Justification comes in Jesus alone. And he gives us the Mass to be able to then give thanks and receive once again what was given once for all on the cross with his body and blood. Now we go exactly where Melanchthon said, going from the church fathers and the scriptures about the use of the sacrament. Beginning in paragraph 68. Some clever men imagine that the Lord's Supper was set up for two reasons. First, that it might be a mark and reference of profession, just as a particular shape of a hood is the sign of a particular monastic profession. Second, they think that such a mark was especially pleasing to Christ, namely a feast to illustrate mutual union and friendship among Christians, because banquets are signs of covenant and friendship. But this is a secular view. It does not show the chief use of the things delivered by God. It speaks only about the exercise of love which people, however profane and worldly, understand. It does not speak of faith, the nature of which few understand. The sacraments are signs of God's will toward us and not merely signs of people among one another. Those who define sacraments in the New Testament as signs of grace are correct. There are two things in a sacrament, a sign and the word. In the New Testament, the word is the promise of grace added. The promise of the New Testament is the promise of forgiveness of sins. This is my body, which is given for you. This cup is my blood of the, new co- of the New Testament, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. 
So the word offers forgiveness of sins. A ceremony is a sort of picture or seal, as Paul calls it, Romans 4.11, the word making known the promise. Therefore, just as the promise is useless unless it is received through faith, so a ceremony is useless unless faith, which is truly confident that the forgiveness of sins is here offered, is added. This faith encourages penitent minds. Just as the word has been given to excite this faith, so the sacrament has been set up so that what meets the eye might move the heart to believe. The Holy Spirit works through these, word and sacrament. All right, the sacraments are signs of God's will toward us, not merely signs that say we are part of this church. We associate with this group. That is not what the sacrament is there for. The sacrament is there in order to deliver the forgiveness of sins for those who are penitent. We continue on in paragraph 71. Such a use of the sacrament in which faith enlivens terrified hearts is a service of the New Testament. That is because the New Testament requires spiritual inclinations, making dead and alive. Christ instituted the sacrament for this use, since he commanded the disciples to do this in remembrance of him. Remembering Christ is not the useless celebration of a show. It is not something set up for the sake of example, as the memory of Hercules or Ulysses is celebrated in tragedies. Rather, it is remembering Christ's benefits and receiving them through faith, to be enlivened by them. So Psalm 111 verses 4 and 5 says, He who has caused his wondrous works to be remembered, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. The sacrament illustrates that God's will and mercy should be discerned in the ceremony. Faith grasps mercy and livens. This is the chief use of the sacrament. It is clear for who are fit for the sacrament, namely terrified consciences, and how they should use it. Simply put, the sacrament is to be used in order to enliven terrified consciences and hearts. Those who are worried about being worthy to take it are probably the most worthy to take it, not the ones who are self-secure and that, yes, I'm good enough to take the sacrament. That's not the point that Jesus makes. Jesus makes the point that it is his body, his blood, given and shed for you, that gives you the forgiveness of sins. He tells us to do this in remembrance of him so that we might be brought back to the idea that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the one justifying sacrifice, the one atonement for mankind. That's it. This is simply not just a reproduction of it. This is not a re-sacrifice of it. This is a remembrance. This is a faith-grasping, enlivening of the hearts that Jesus died for us. And through that death gives us the forgiveness of sins. And he sets up the sacrament to be able to be a vehicle for that forgiveness. Paragraph 74, the sacrifice also is added, for there are several reasons with one purpose. After a conscience encouraged through faith is determined from what terrors it is freed, it fervently gives thanks for Christ's benefit and passion. It also uses the ceremony itself to God's praise, to show its gratitude by this obedience. It declares that it holds God's gifts in high esteem, so the ceremony becomes a sacrifice of praise. It becomes a Eucharistic sacrifice. If you want to call the Mass, you want to call the sacrament a sacrifice, great. 
but it's a Eucharistic sacrifice because it is through that that we praise God for the gifts that he gives us. The fathers certainly speak of a twofold effect, the comfort of consciences and thanksgiving or praise. The former of these effects has to do with the nature of the sacrament. The latter has to do with the sacrifice. Ambrose says about comfort, Go to him and be absolved, because he is the forgiveness of sins. Do you ask who he is? Hear him when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 35. This passage declares that the forgiveness of sins is offered in the sacrament. It also declares that this should be received through faith. Countless references with this meaning are found in the fathers, all of which the adversaries pervert to the outward act and to a work applied to others. Yet the fathers clearly require faith and speak of the comfort belonging to everyone and not of the application. The sacrament is given to bring comfort, not to be something to check off the list that I've done it this week or I've done it this month, but to give comfort to our consciences. Besides, these expressions are also found about thanksgiving. One beautiful expression by Cyprian is about those communing in a godly way. Piety in thanking the bestower of such abundant blessing makes a distinction between what has been given and what has been forgiven. This means piety regards both what has been given and what has been forgiven. That is, it compares the greatness of God's blessings and the greatness of our evils, sin, and death with each other and gives thanks and so on. In this way, the term Eucharist arose in the church. Certainly the ceremony itself, the giving of thanks by the outward act, does not apply to others. It does not merit the forgiveness of sins for others and free souls of the dead. These opinions conflict with the righteousness of faith. Without faith, the ceremony cannot benefit either the one performing it or others. The proper use of the sacrament requires faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus' words and promises that with the bread is his body, with the wine is his blood, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And we see this over and over again in Luther's small catechism, that he brings this about as he talks about the sacrament of the altar, repeating, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That is the most important part. That is what causes us to praise God for all of his benefits, not just this eating and drinking. So now we move from paragraphs 78 to 88 with Melanchthon talking about the word Mass. And why is it called the Mass? What does Mass mean? All of these questions and the linguistics and etymology behind all of it get to be the next part of our journey through this article. The adversaries also refer us to linguistics. They get arguments from the names of the Mass, which do not require a long discussion. For even though the Mass is called a sacrifice, it does not make sense that it must give grace by the outward act, or when applied to others, merits the forgiveness of sins for them. Liturgia, they say, means a sacrifice, and the Greeks call the Mass liturgy. Why do they leave out here the old name Synaxis, which shows that the Mass used to be the communion of many? Let us discuss the word liturgy. The word does not properly mean a sacrifice, but rather the public ministry. Liturgy agrees well with our belief that one minister who consecrates gives the Lord's blood. Excuse me, I'm tripping over myself here. 
Liturgy agrees well with our belief that one minister who consecrates gives the Lord's body and blood to the rest of the people, just as one minister who preaches offers the gospel to the people. As Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1, that is, of the gospel and the sacraments. And we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So the term liturgia agrees well with the ministry, for it is an old word ordinarily used in public civil administrations. To the Greek, it meant public burdens, such as tribute, the expense of equipping a fleet, or similar things. For Lepertines, the oration of Demosthenes speaks about these things, discussing at length public duties and exemptions. He will say that some unworthy men, having found an exemption, have withdrawn from public burdens. And so they spoke in the time of the Romans, as the reply of Pertinax on the law of exemption shows, even though the number of children does not liberate parents from all public burdens. And the commentary on Demosthenes states that liturgia is a kind of tribute, the expense of the games, the expense of equipping vessels, of attending to the gymnasia and similar public offices. In 2 Corinthians 9.12, Paul uses it for a collection. Taking a collection not only supplies those things that the saints lack, but also gives to them more thanks abundantly to God. In Philippians 2.25, he calls Epaphroditus a minister to my need, where certainly a sacrificer could not be understood. Further references are not needed, since examples are understandable for those reading the Greek writers in whom liturgia is used for public civil burdens or ministries. Because of the paravows, grammarians do not get this term from lite, which means prayers, but from public goods, which they call leto, so that liturgia means I pay attention to or I administer public goods. So what do we got here? We've got the mass being called a sacrifice because that is what the Roman theologians want to say liturgia means. But liturgia is simply the Greek for the public good that was done. And we Latinize liturgia to be liturgy and then continue on that this works well for us because it is for the public good for the liturgy. And it is the one minister who is over the liturgy that is the one who proclaims the gospel in the sermon but also administers the sacraments. Now, yes, you may have more than one minister in a church, you may have vicars or seminary students who are in the process of being trained to be pastors, but ultimately in the church, everything around the public administration of the sacrament boils down to one person, and that is the pastor. And that is the whole point of liturgia and calling the service liturgy. And that comes straight from the etymology of that word. Right, paragraphs 84 through 87. Their argument, since the Holy Scriptures mention an altar, the mass must be a sacrifice, is ridiculous. Paul refers to the figure of an altar only by comparison. And they invent the idea that the mass was named for from the altar. Why do they need such a far-fetched sources for words unless they want to show their knowledge of the Hebrew language? Why seek the sources for words from a distance when the mass is found in Deuteronomy 16.10, where it means the collection or gifts of the people, not the offering of the priest. Individuals coming to the celebration of the Passover were obliged to bring some gift as a contribution. 
Early Christians also kept this custom. Coming together, they brought bread, wine, and other things as the canons of the apostles declare. From there, a portion was taken to be consecrated. The rest was given out to the poor. With this custom, they also kept Mass as the name of the contributions. Because of such contributions, it appears also that in many other places, the Mass was called agape, unless one would prefer that it was so called because of the common feast. Let us leave out these silly things. It is ridiculous that the adversary should produce such trifling guesses about such an important matter. Although the Mass is called an offering, how does the term favor the dreams about the outward act and their application, which merits the forgiveness of sins for others? Can it be called an offering because prayers, thanksgivings, and the entire worship are offered there, as it is also called a Eucharist? Neither ceremonies nor prayers benefit by the outward act without faith. We are not arguing here about prayers, but particularly about the Lord's Supper. Again, they talk about all the different things and all the different silly ways that try to linguistic somersaults around all the words to make everything fit the way they want it to appear. Because that is the control that Rome had over all the people at the time, is that you had to listen to them because they were the educated ones. Thanks be to God, that is not the case today. That there are many congregations that have many well-educated people that not, may not have a master of divinity or a master's in theology, but definitely know their Bible and know their confessions. Hopefully some of them are. That's the reason why they are listening to the podcast is so they can continue to grow because it's exactly what this podcast is for, is to help you to grow. We conclude with paragraph 88. Going from Rome to the Eastern Church, especially among the Greeks, the Greek canon also says many things about the offering, but it plainly shows that it is not speaking properly of the body and blood of the Lord, but of the whole service of prayers and thanksgivings. For it says this, Make us worthy to bring to you prayers and requests and bloodless sacrifices on behalf of all people. When this is rightly understood, it is not offensive. It prays that we be worthy to offer prayers and supplications and bloodless sacrifices for the people. He calls even prayers bloodless sacrifices. Just as also a little afterward we offer, he says, this reasonable and bloodless service. Those who would interpret this as a reasonable service or sacrifice and transfer it to Christ's very body and blood do so inappropriately. The canon speaks of the entire worship, and in opposition to the outward act, Paul has spoken of reasonable service, Romans 12.1, namely of the worship of the mind, of fear, of faith, of prayer, of thanksgiving, and so on. As we finish up this week, that is the point. The Greek canon, the Greek prayer at the beginning of the service of the sacrament talks about the entire service, not just the offering of the body and the blood, but the whole service, the prayers, the thanksgiving, the hymns, the scripture readings, the sermon, everything in there, that this be seen by God as a sacrifice of praise, as a Eucharistic sacrifice, which is why the Greek church calls it the Eucharist. And even in the Roman missals, they have the different prayers called Eucharistic prayers, giving thanks to God. But of course, Rome still twists them to believe that this is all talking about the body and blood of Jesus, 
where even the words themselves say it's all about the prayers and the praise and the faith. But as we've gone through the apology of the Augsburg Confession, we know what Rome thought of faith in the 16th century, that it was nothing more than simply being able to recite the history of what happened to Jesus. And that's all that was important. But there are so many things wrong with that idea. And I'm hitting my 20-minute mark now, so I won't go into a long tirade. But the point behind everything we do in worship should be faith in the one who saved us from our sins, who continues to deliver that salvation even through his body and blood in the bread and wine of the sacrament. His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary brings us the benefits even still today. And that is something we have to wrestle with, even just wrapping our heads around. But it is there not as a puzzle for you to figure out. It is there as a statement from God for you to believe. It is a promise that he has given to you. And that strengthens us to be able to wrestle with all the rest of the things that go on around it. That especially as we get into next week, the mass for the dead, then we see where the rubber meets the road with the abuses of the mass. But that's next week. For this week at start time, I am Pastor Doug Minton, thanking you for being here, standing in the confessional corner with me, continuing to learn about the great sacrifice of the Mass, because it is a place where we give thanks to God for all of His blessings, not just His body and blood, but the ability to come together and to pray, praise, and give thanks. Amen.